Chapter 13 of Hellenic History This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford Chapter 13 Age of the War Heroes 2. Society and Culture 479 to 461. Eastern and Western Hellas compared. In the generation that defended Hellas against the assaults of Persia and Carthage, social conditions in the Western colonies and in the mother country, though outwardly presenting certain contrasts, were at basis similar. The same poets and philosophers ministered to the intellectual needs of both regions, and the temples of Acragas and Syracuse were not inferior in beauty to those of Agena and Olympia. In contrast with the material wealth and splendor of Sicily and Italy, we may place the steadier and more substantial character of Spartans and Athenians. The brief view of life and thought offered in this chapter aims to represent the Hellenes in general, and more particularly the Athenians, whose social life has for us a deeper interest as the precursor of the splendid age of Pericles. The Aristocratic Spirit of Athenian Society In spite of the democratic reforms of Cleisthenes, Athenian society remains aristocratic. Political leadership was still the exclusive prize to be striven for by a few great families. It is true that some of the most powerful gentes had either been totally destroyed or brought to the verge of ruin. The Pesistraditae were in perpetual exile as men accursed of heaven. The condemnation of Maltiades had been a terrible blow to the Philidae, and it required all the prestige of his son Simon, won through brilliant victories, magnificent generosity, and personal charm, to rehabilitate the family. A greater disgrace had fallen upon the Alcmeonidae, the gens of Cleisthenes, through their association with the Tyrannists in the political struggles which intervened between the battles of Marathon and Salamis. They had paid the penalty in the ostracism of their representative Megacles, nephew of the famous lawgiver, and still more in the suspicion now hanging over them of having plotted with the enemy during the Marathonian campaign. These circumstances had tarnished the glory of their achievements in building a temple to Apollo at Delphi, in victories at the great national games, and in restoring the democracy at Athens. Yet they propped up their house by fortunate marriages. The hand of Agaristi, sister of Megacles, had been taken by Xanthippus, the Athenian admiral at Mycale, and an undoubted patriot. Years afterwards, Isodice, another daughter of the house, was given in marriage to Simon. It was left to a son of the former marriage, Pericles, to shed an eternal luster of his mother's family, which during the, quote, period of the war heroes, end quote, had no enviable part in public life. Aristides, son of Lysimachus, was likewise a Eupatriot, and married into the wealthy gents of Callias. On the question of his poverty, 
It may be granted as possible that in later life he lost his property through misfortune, yet he certainly had an estate, evidently a farm near Phalarum, sufficiently great to qualify him for the archonship. Apparently his rival Themistocles, as has been explained, had common interests with the commercial class, but his membership in the gens of the Lycomedae who were priests at the Shrine of Initiation at Phyla, their deem, proves him to be of Eupatrid blood. Aeschylus, 524-456 In the same class with these men of action may be placed one who desired above all things to be considered a loyal citizen who had done good service for his country at Marathon, the poet Aeschylus. In his days the man of deeds was greater than the artist, and it is almost in spite of himself that we describe him as a literary man, most creative of ancient dramatists. In his hands the action had greater scope, though still secondary to the chorus. Not merely the intense productivity of his genius, but the splendid qualities of his seven surviving dramas place him among the world's greatest poets. Pinder, about 520 to 441. Contemporary with Aeschylus lived Pinder, a Boeotian, the most famous of lyrists. Like Aeschylus, he was nobly born, but he was also a priest by family right. We know him chiefly through his choral songs in honor of victors at the great national games. Of other poems, we have a few precious fragments. A younger contemporary was Bacchylides of Chios, a lyric poet like Pindar, though inferior in genius. The discovery, 1896, of a papyrus containing several entire odes of this poet, in addition to fragments, make him a useful source for the cultural history of the period. On Aeschylus, Pindar, and Bacchylides, we have to depend largely for knowledge of the best thought and sentiment of Athens and Hellas in the age of Hieron, Themistocles, and Simon. Divine Virtues of the Aristocracy In a small class of Athenian nobles, and in wider circles within less progressive states, there survived an intensely aristocratic spirit, which found brilliant expression in Pindar. For the glory of his class, he has transmuted into excellence certain blemishes of the older mythology. In the loves of gods for mortal women, he sees the working of a beneficent purpose for grafting divine virtues on the human race. From such unions sprang the heroes of old, patterns of manly virtue. Their natures were the heritage of the families which they founded, and which formed the nobility of every Hellenic state. Fortunate is the city ruled by such a stock. Quote, Happy is Lacedaemon, blessed is Thessaly. In both reigneth a race sprung from one sire, from Heracles, bravest in the fight. End quote. While the youthful scion of such a family wins the Pythian and the Olympic victories which Pindar celebrates in song, his elders apply themselves to politics. Quote, his noble brethren also will we praise, because they exalt and make great the Thessalian's commonwealth, 
for in the hands of good men lieth the good piloting of the cities wherein their fathers ruled. End quote. Natural Endowment versus Acquired Learning In this aristocratic philosophy of life, a large place is inevitably held by natural endowment, as contrasted with acquired skill. Yet nothing can be achieved without toil. Quote, By inborn worth doth one prevail mightily, yet whoso hath but precepts is a vain man, and is fain now for this thing and now again for that. Yet a sure step planneth he not at any time, but handleth countless enterprises with a purpose that achieveth not. End quote. Quote, If one be born with excellent gifts, then may another who sharpeneth his natural edge speed him, God helping, to an exceeding weight of glory. Without toil, there have triumphed a very few. End quote. Quote, Each hath his several art, but in straight paths it behoveth him to walk, and to strive hard wherein his nature setteth him. Thus worketh strength in act, and mind in counsels. End quote. The Noble Youth even in youth is made manifest the righteous mind of the ideal Lord. Quote, For he was a boy with boys, yet in councils an old man of a hundred years. The evil tongue he rubbeth of its loud voice, and hath learned to abhor the insolent. Neither will he make strife against the good, nor tarry when he hath a deed in hand. A brief span hath opportunity for man. But of him it is known surely when it cometh, and he waiteth thereon a servant, but no slave. The Nobility in War Such men of noble heritage and athletic training stood ready in need to endure the brunt of battle for their country. And when bronze-shielded Ares has given one over to death, quote, Yet there remaineth for the valiant a recompense of renown. For let whoso amid the cloud of war from his beloved country wardeth off the bloody shower and worketh havoc in the enemy's host, know assuredly that for the race of his fellow citizens he maketh their renown wax mightily, yea, when he is dead even as while he was yet alive. End quote. Public and social service. Constant too is he in worship, quote, at all festivals of the gods, devoted with guileless soul to peace and to the welfare of his state, end quote, employing his wealth for the public good, in patronage of the arts cultivated by his class, and in hospitality, quote, Sweet is his spirit toward the company of his guests, yea, sweeter than the honeycomb, the toil of bees. End quote. A social gathering. We catch interesting glimpses of the social life in the banquets of men. Ion, a poet of Chios, tells of such a social gathering which he attended at Athens when a boy. After the libation of wine to the gods, 
The guests asked Simon to sing, and he complied with such success as to win the warm applause of the company. Here was a man who had never studied music, but who, to amuse his fellow guests, was willing to sing probably a rollicking sailor song. Afterward, he told the company the cleverest thing he had done in his life, how in the division of spoils he had outwitted the wily Ionians under his command. But the joy of one of these banquets, and the dreams stimulated by wine, Bacchylides has well described. Quote, when, as the cups go swiftly round, a sweet subduing power warns the heart, and blending with the gifts of Dionysus, a presage of the Cyprian goddess flutters the mind. That power sends a man's thought scaring. Straightway he is stripping cities of their diadem of towers. He dreams that he shall be monarch of the world. His halls gleam with gold and ivory. Over the sunlit sea his sweet ships bring wealth untold from Egypt. Such are the raptures of the reveler's soul. End quote. Simon, Youth and Man As a young man, Simon had acquired an unenviable reputation for disorderly habits and excesses in drink. Handsome enough with his tall stature and thick curly locks, he displayed but a dull wit and won no better nickname than Simpleton. Yet in later years he developed a noble character, able in command by land or sea, incorruptible, public-spirited, social and generous any deemsman was at liberty uninvited to pluck his fruit or sit at his table and whenever he went through the streets he was accompanied by servants who distributed clothes and money among the needy citizens the social side of themistocles themistocles on the other hand a man of superior dignity and of vastly greater mental power liked the faculty of unbending at social gatherings. Delighting in hospitality, he gave sumptuous banquets, and though he did not venture to sing to his guests, he kept in his home a famous lyrist for their entertainment. His social field, however, was the marketplace and the nicks. There he met the citizens and saluted each one by name, and they, pleased with this individual attention, thought there was no man in the world like Themistocles. They readily brought him their disputes for arbitration, and in such cases he always showed himself a just judge. Again, when as general he was asked to break the law for the benefit of his friend Simonides, he replied, quote, You would be no good poet if you composed contrary to metrical rules and I no good magistrate if I should grant a favor in violation of the laws." It was this reputation, rather than that given him by enemies, which caused Hellenic states to choose him arbitrator of their disputes. Democratic Tendency of Society, Aeschylus In Athens, thought and custom gravitated irresistibly toward democracy. The great representative of the tendency was Aristides, whose whole heart was in the work of social and political equalization, whereas Themistocles, a man of aristocratic taste, championed the cause as a means to the aggrandizement of his state. 
In literature, Aeschylus, though a eupatrid, glows with a passion for freedom and gives his sympathy without reserve to the lowly. Against the aristocratic tradition which made the eupatrid good and God-beloved, and the poor base and vicious, Aeschylus upholds a more rational view of right and wrong and of their reward and punishment. Quote, Wealth is no protection for a man who in full-fed insolence kicks into annihilation the mighty altar of justice. But the resistless child of eighty tempts him on. To his prayer no god lends an ear, but destroys the unjust men. End quote. In the poor, no less than in rich, live virtues. Quote, Justice shines in smoke-grimed homes and honors the life that is righteous. With averted eyes she leaves the gold-bespangled palaces by polluted hands defiled and goes to the abode that is holy, not reverencing the power of wealth sealed with spurious renown, and all things she guides to their appointed end. End quote. He makes us understand the feelings of a woman who has been taken captive in war, enslaved, and subjected to injustice and brutality. Quote, and I, the gods have crushed me in the fall of my far-off war-leaguered home, have hailed me from my father's house a thrall unto an evil doom, and I must brook the brutal recklessness. My life is not mine to control which calls injustice justice, must suppress the loathing of my soul. Such sentiments had their effect upon his audience. Perhaps his greatest social interest was in woman, whose traditional standing in society was now suffering impairment. The social standing of women, their social power. We have seen the great families of Athens connecting themselves closely with one another by intermarriage. It was still no uncommon thing, too, for a noble to take a wife from abroad. In fact, the number of great men descended from non-Athenian mothers in the period before and immediately after the Persian War is remarkable. They include Cleisthenes, Maltiades, Simon, and Themistocles. However these foreign women may have been received in society, they certainly brought no disgrace or political handicap upon their illustrious sons. The story that because of the foreign extraction of his mother, Themistocles was base-born is an idle tale, invented probably by some ignorant rhetorician. He was as thoroughly a citizen as Cleisthenes and Simon, and had the same right to hold office. It was in full accord, too, with prevailing custom that he gave his daughter Italia in marriage to a citizen of Chios. The women who were thus taken and given in marriage were not mere pawns on the political chessboard. Whether at Athens or among her neighbors, high-born ladies were freer and wielded greater social influence in this aristocratic period than did those of the Periclean age and after. This fact is noticeable in the pages of Herodotus, who, having breathed the same aristocratic atmosphere, has been able to appreciate the power of woman in the earlier history of his race. We find the same condition reflected in the poetry of the age. In the opinion of Bacchylides, 
Agena could have no greater praise than the patriotic songs of her girls. Quote, Yea, and thy glory is a theme for the high vaunt of some maiden, as oft with her white feet she moved o'er thy sacred soil, bounding lightly as a joyous fawn toward the flowery hills with her glorious neighbors and companions. And when they have crowned themselves with wreaths of young flowers and of reeds, in the festive fashion of their isle, they hymn thy power, O Queen of the thrice hospitable land. On domestic women, the lyrics of Pinder now extant are not such as to light up for us the family circle, but here and there we discover in them a gleam of life within the household. Of undomestic women the Greeks had examples among the goddesses, especially military Athena and huntress Artemis. Naturally, they reappear in myths, and the type seems familiar to the poet. Such was Cyrene, who, quote, loved not the pacings to and fro before the loom, nor the delights of feasting with her fellows within the house, but with bronze javelins and a sword she fought against and slew wild beasts of prey, yea, and much peace and surety she gave thereby to her father's herds." More frequent were the girls whose young minds were entranced by the beauty and the prowess of the youthful athlete. Not seldom in song was the bride a prize in foot or chariot race. The social freedom of her sex was such as to admit of a, quote, wedlock in which hearts are wedded, graced with marriage tables and the sound of many voices in hymeneal song, such as the bride's girl mates are wont to sing at eventide with merry minstrelsy. End quote. The ideal woman is the mother of warriors and athletes, the mistress of a household, wherein, quote, abideth love steadfastly, end quote. This ideal may well have been realized in the life of Simon and his wife Isadice, of whom he was passionately fond, and whose death left him inconsolable. A poet friend tried in elegies to moderate his grief. The fact that poetry could be devoted to such a purpose may be placed among the indications of a higher social regard for woman than can be proved for the following generation. Similarly, the wife of Themistocles had her own way with her husband, if indeed there be a grain of truth in the anecdote which represents Themistocles as speaking thus to his young son, quote, You have more power than anyone else in Greece. For the Athenians command the rest of the Greeks, I command the Athenians, your mother commands me, and you command your mother. End quote. The Emancipated Woman Elpinaisi, the social freedom of young women. An example of the quote-unquote emancipated woman, strong of character and a power in politics, yet doubtless personally winsome, was Elpinaisi, sister of Simon. Callias the wealthy, falling in love with her, obtained her hand in marriage. She charmed the famous painter Polygnatus, who introduced her portrait among the Trojan matrons in one of his great mural scenes. As an example of her political influence, we may cite the fact that she successfully intervened with Pericles 
in favor of her brother when he was prosecuted. A woman who thus freely walked in public could not escape the vile tongues of slander. We may feel confident, however, that her freedom wrought her no actual harm. It is significant, too, that there remains even in this age at least occasional love-making and courtship preliminary to marriage. This was true not only of Elpinaisi, but of Themistocles's daughter. Of two rivals the father favored the man of worth, rather than the one who was wealthy, explaining that he preferred a man without riches to riches without a man. The presence of daughters at banquets given by their father is reflected in a drama by Aeschylus. Quote, ah, often and often had her sire's holes thrilled to the glad outpouring of her songs by the table banquet laden, when the wine drops were spilled and the pure-voiced maiden called down heaven's blessings in chants adoring. Under these circumstances, a girl, while willing to submit to the inevitable, might hope for a congenial mate and for happiness in marriage. Quote, ah, hush! What thing fate meanest to bring, even that and none other must needs betide. The purpose designed of the mighty mind of Zeus none crosseth nor turneth aside. Yet, O oh, that my fate, that my wedded state might now at the last be peace and bliss, such as many a woman had known ere this. They should have a voice, therefore, in choosing their husbands. The idea of brutally comparing girls to marry men they abhor, whom to escape they would gladly die, is denounced in the strongest terms by Aeschylus. This poet must have had an opportunity to study women, only possible on the assumption that they mingled socially with men, and he must have found excellent material for his dramatic portraits. His strongest human character is a woman, Queen Clytemnestra, who possessed great intellectual strength and a, quote, man's way-planning hoping heart, end quote. In killing her husband, she but served as a link in the resistless chain of blood revenge. Social Forces for the Seclusion of Women But the honorable and relatively free place of woman in society was not assured. There were forces at work for her seclusion, which likewise find a mouthpiece in one of the characters of Aeschylus. Quote, Never, either in trouble or in dear prosperity, may I have to dwell with womankind. For if they have the upper hand, their effrontery is such that one cannot keep their company, and if they are in fear, they are a yet greater nuisance to the state. Matters out of doors are the care of the men. Let not a woman have a voice in them. Keep you at home, and thus cause no further mischief." An objection to her having a hand in affairs was found in certain alleged defects of her character. Quote, it is natural to the impulsive character of woman to assent to what is pleasing in preference to what is certainly known. Too credulous the boundaries of her mind, and encroached on by swift inroads, and a report spread by her perishes by a quick fate. End quote. Dawn of a masculine age. After these restrictions on her activity, 
The next step was to rob woman of her motherhood, contrary to the principle of ethic law that the son could be alienated from the mother by no legal process whatsoever, the Apollo of this generation declares the son to be of no kin with the mother, the father to be the only parent. At hand was the hard masculine age of Pericles, whose political intensity reduced woman and home life to a minimum. In keeping is the strongly masculine character of Athena, as president of the tribunal that voted the acquittal of Orestes for the murder of his mother, she renders her opinion in the following words. Quote, With me it rests to give my sentence last. I to Orestes's cause shall add this vote. For mother is there none that gave me birth. I am holy, safe for marriage. With the male with all my soul, I take the father's side. Of so much less account I hold the death of her who slew her lord, the household's head. End quote. The Family The Hereditary Curse In spite of tendencies detrimental to woman, the family remained a sacred institution whose religious object was the worship of the dead and of the other household gods. It is meet that men grieve for the ills of their house, love their kin, and honor their parents next to God, quote, even as the father's soul warmeth for his lawful son, and he prayeth that his children's children preserve and with acquired glory amplify the honors of the family, End quote. Any disturbance of this harmony is monstrous, quote, if there be enmity between kin, the fates stand aside and would fain hide the shame. End quote. Most highness is the shedding of kindred blood. Axion, the cane of Hellenic legend, the first to commit this awful sin, chained in punishment to a winged wheel, writhes in everlasting agony. Far from being pardonable, this crime grows and produces other more terrible crimes. The house of Cadmus, founder of Thebes, is doomed to misfortune because it has offended the gods in various ways. Oedipus, heir to the power and the woes of the stock, is driven unwittingly to the commission of a dreadful sin. He suffers unspeakable agony of mind, and his children inherit the curse. His daughter Antigone is buried alive. His two sons kill each other in civil war. The whole family sinks to ruin. In this case, the guilt, growing from generation to generation, brings its legitimate punishment. Salvation through suffering. But the gods are merciful and have provided a way of escape from sin. This principle is illustrated in the house of Agamemnon, his father had committed an enormous crime, and he had inherited the curse. By it he was driven madly to more serious offenses. He sacrificed his own daughter, Iphigenia, before sailing to Troy, and after capturing the city, he violated the temples and altars of its gods. When, therefore, he returned home, he reaped his reward, stabbed to death by his wife Clytemnestra. Next, their sons Orestes, as the avenger of his father, murdered his mother. 
the guilt he had inherited brought forth this monstrous fruit. Then the furies of his mother pursued him, tormenting him with the most intense suffering. But this agonizing experience brought him knowledge of the law of righteousness and of his duty to it. Suffering taught him obedience. Thereupon he was purified by Apollo at Delphi and acquitted by the council of the Areopagus sitting under the presidency of Athena. In this way the family was ultimately saved from the consequences of its guilt. Quote, Zeus has placed mortals in the path to wisdom and has ordained that suffering bring instruction. For even in sleep the painful memory of woe presenting itself to the heart instills obedience which comes thus to the unwilling and surely this is a mercy of the gods who sit on their awful thrones with power to compel by these means with god's aid a family works out its own redemption in suffering but for future tranquillity there is need of resignation Quote, we shall know our fate clearly with the morning dawn. End quote. The growing love of peace. The tempering of justice with mercy described above is in keeping with a growing spirit of kindliness which expresses itself in diverse forms. In truth, we are surprised to discover in this martial age so much humanity, so strong yearnings for peace. In the poets there is less of the glory of war than of its cruelty and suffering. Aeschylus details the soldier's hardships. Quote, of travail might I tell, bleak bivouac, of iron-bound coasts, hard-lying, groans on groans, who knows how many, through the straitened days, then came new ills on land to vex us more. Hard by our foes' walls, through the nights we lay, and dews from heaven, and reek of marshy med, down drizzled, clammy cleaving, rotting vest, and making man's hair like a wild beast's fell. But oh, to tell of winters that slew birds, by snows of Ida made intolerable, of heats when on his mid-noon couch the sea unrippled sank and slept, and no breath stirred. End quote. Inconceivably horrible is the sacking of a city. Quote, Pitiable it is to thrust down to Hades this venerable city, captive of the savage spear, shamefully wasted in crumbling dust by the Achaean chief. Alas, that maids and matrons, their vesture rent, be dragged away by the hair as horses by the mane, while the people with mingled wailings meet their doom, and in their midst the rifled city cries aloud, I dread your evil fate. Sad that tender girls unwed should exchange the shelter of their homes for the bitter path of slavery. Shall I not count the dead in better plight than they? Many are the ills a conquered city suffers. This man drags one captive, another he murders, that quarter he sets in flames. The whole town is sullied with smoke, and Ares, raving wild, fans the flame violating religion. End quote. 
the poet grieves too with those at home for the dear ones lost in battle. Quote, alas and alas for thy tale of these, dear friends sea-whelmed, tossed to and fro, dead forms that sway with the tumbling seas in their endless ebb and flow. They are mangled in dread sea-world pits wild, and the flesh that we loved is torn by the dumb-lipped child of the undefiled. For its lord doth the void home mourn, and the childless fathers cry in a passion of agony, as the stroke that has fallen from on high now first to their ears is borne." The chafing of the people under miseries caused by needless wars, their hatred of the magistrates who were responsible for these sufferings, made for peace, whose coming appears, quote, even as after the wintry gloom in the flowery months the earth blossometh with red roses, end quote. Consistently the poet prays God to defer unto the uttermost an impending trial of valor against foreign spears and to, quote, grant unto the sons of the men of Etna for long time a portion in good laws, and to make their people to dwell among the glories that the citizens have won. End quote. Quote, Yea, and peace, mighty goddess, brings forth wealth for mortals, and the flowers of honeyed song. Her gift it is that thy flesh of oxen and of fleecy sheep is burnt to the gods in yellow flame on carven altars and that youths disport themselves with bodily feats and with flutes and revels. The webs of red-brown spiders are on the iron-bound handles of shields. Sharp-pointed spears and two-edged swords are a prey to rust. No blast of bronze trumpet is heard. Sleep of gentle spirit that comforts the heart at dawn is not stolen from the eyelids. Joyous feasting abounds in the streets, and songs in praise of youth flame forth. O kindly peace, daughter of righteousness, exclaims Pinder, thou that makest cities great and holdest the supreme keys of councils and of wars, thou knowest how alike to give and take gentleness in due season. Thou also, if any have moved thy heart unto relentless wrath, doth terribly confront the enemy's might, and sinkest insolence in the sea." End quote. Religion, one supreme being. Not only the growing kindliness of the age, but also its religious spirit found their clearest expression in the poets, especially in Pindar and Aeschylus. The former was more conservative, the latter more progressive yet both hold to the hereditary faith of their race, exalted and purified by splendid intelligence and brilliant imagination. In touch with the best thought of the age, they can only conceive of God as supreme above a host of celestial spirits. Quote, Here thou whose thoughts are from times eternal, Zeus, blesser and blessed, creator supernal, Thou art throned where the lordship of none thou obeyest. Beneath no stronger thy scepter thou swayest. What purpose soever thy spirit conceiveth, 
the deed as the word, thine hand achieveth. End quote. His knowledge is equally unlimited. Quote, if a man thinketh that in doing aught he shall be hidden from God, he erreth. End quote. Apollo, beside his unerring father, quote, giveth heed to his own wisdom, his mind that knoweth all things, in lies it hath no part, neither in act nor in thought may God or man deceive him. At the everlasting centrestone of deep murmuring earth, thou foretellest the future, and what shall come to pass, and whence it shall be, thou discernest perfectly. End quote. The gods are pure. The stories of the shameful doings of the heavenly powers are false tales cunningly devised. Such is the story that the gods once feasted on the shoulder of a boy, served up to them by the father. Quote, but to me it is impossible to call one of the blessed gods cannibal. End quote. Similar fictions are the stories of their wars with one another. Quote, o my mouth, fling this tale from thee, for to speak evil of gods is hateful wisdom, and loud and unmeasured words strike a note that trembleth upon madness. Of such things talk thou not, leave war of immortals and all strife aside. End quote. God is not only pure, but the author of all good. Quote, from thee, O Zeus, cometh to mortals all high excellence, longer liveth their bliss who have thee in honor. From gods come all means of mortal valor, hereby come bards and men of mighty hand and eloquent speech. The happiness that is planted by the favor of the gods is most abiding among men. It behooveth thee, therefore, even in the midst of triumph, to pray that, the favor of God be unfailing toward the fortune of thee and thine. End quote. The poetry and thought of Pindar and Aeschylus. Pindar and Aeschylus combine in the highest degree power, splendor, and sublimity. Both walk on a high plane of religious and moral purity. But the Pindaric glitter reflects the glory of earth and of the gods who lived no higher than Olympus whereas the words of Aeschylus spring from a loftier spiritual and moral inspiration. Yet mark the modesty of one in contrast with the almost pompous pride of the other. Aeschylus, as his epitaph teaches, wished to be remembered not by his splendid dramas, but by his parts in the Battle of Marathon. Quote, this tomb the dust of Aeschylus doth hide, Euphorian's son, and fruitful Gallus pride, how famed his valor Marathon may tell, and long-haired Medes, who knew it all too well. In Pindar's mind, the glory of the games is equaled only by the poet's art. His own calling he esteems above the statuary's skill. Quote, no sculptor I, that I should fashion images to rest idly on their pedestals. End quote. His words are things of winged life and fleet motion, now honeybees flitting from tail to tail, now bronze-tipped javelins hurled from the hand, or darts shot from the muse's far-delivering bow, now rushing waves, or a gale of glorious song. 
his finished poem he aptly compares to a majestic palace whose marbles glitter in the sunlight. Quote, Golden pillars will I set up in the porch of the house of my song, as in a stately palace hall, for it beseemeth that in the forefront of the work the entablature shoot far its splendor. End quote. A minstrel of inborn genius, he is like the swift eagle who loves the lone bosom of the cold ether, while far below flock his rivals, men of acquired cleverness merely. Quote, Strong in the multitude of words, they are but crows that chatter vainly in strife against the divine bird of Zeus. End quote. Fine Arts Importance of the Age in Art The age was as notable for the fine arts as for lyric and dramatic poetry. In the history of art it is designated as a quote-unquote transition from the archaic style to the perfection of the Periclean age. All stages of growth, however, are transitions, and the art of the war generation had as positive merits as any other. In our political study of the Athens of this generation, we have noticed the fortification of the city as a political necessity, leaving its adornment for consideration as an element of culture. The dwellings of the citizens, even of the wealthy, remained modest in size and simple in adornment. Quote, in private life they practiced so great moderation that even if any of you knew which was the house of Aristides or Miltiades or any of the famous men of old, you would find it no more portentous than any of its neighbors. End quote. This quotation from Demosthenes epitomizes the character of the great men of the Marathonian generation who merged their personality in the citizen body. The most liberal patrons of art were Themistocles and Simon. The former, with his own means, built near his residence a shrine to quote-unquote best counseling, Artemis, and began preparing the summit of the Acropolis to serve as the sacred precincts of Athena's temples. Then from the sale of spoil and captives taken at Eurymedon, Simon built the huge retaining wall along the south edge which gives the hill its present steepness on that side and greatly enlarges the area of the summit. Under his supervision, too, was erected from the spoils of the conflict with Persia a colossal bronze statue of Athena on the Acropolis, to the west of the old Athena temple, which the Persians had left in ruins. The goddess stood erect, clad in full armor. Her spear, grasped in hand, rested upright on the ground. The visitor to Athens, sailing to Piraeus past Sunium, was made aware of this Athena by the gleam of the sun on her first known work, Aphidius, the most celebrated sculptor of all time. Marketplace, Agora In the lower city, Simon devoted most of his attention to the marketplace, which lay north of the Areopagus. Here, in his age, and probably under his administration, the Athenians erected their council hall for the sessions of the 500, the rotunda for the Pritanus, and other public buildings. Farther to the north, probably bordering the market on the west, was placed the king's porch, and opposite it, on the east side, the painted porch. The former may have survived the Persian devastation, 
the latter was erected by a kinsman of Simon. In the former, the king held office, and the council of the Areopagus met in special sessions. The plan of these early porches is not known. If, as has been reasonably conjectured, the Roman basilica, name and form, was derived from the royal porch, Basileos, Basilike, at Athens, we must assume for the Athenian model an oblong building with an interior colonnade and possibly, in addition, a portico on the side that faced the market. Illustrations Barber Cutting Hair and Shoe Shop from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts Polygnotus Battle of Marathon Part of the interior mural space was occupied by frescoes and the work of the painted porch was done by Polygnotus of Thasis, whom Simon had invited to Athens and with whom other artists collaborated. The most famous of these pictures was the Battle of Marathon, which included among the combatants portraits of the polymarch Callimachus, of Miltiades and Aeschylus. Polygnotus was the first great Hellenic painter. No copy of any of his works has survived, and in truth we have little knowledge of his technique, or, apart from vase decoration, of Greek painting in general. Undoubtedly he introduced the art of frescoing from Ionia, where it may have survived even from Minoan times. For the social condition of artists in that age, it is significant that he was a man of noble birth and of ample fortune, who wrought for the love of art and for the honor of the city he helped adorn. His art, so far as we can judge, was simple, with but a faint suggestion of perspective, yet dignified and noble, like the sculptures and dramas of the period. Shade trees, booths, and shops. Other buildings in and about the marketplace need not detain us here. The plain trees planted by Simon in the open space, quite as much as the porticos, afforded a welcome protection from the heat and glare of the sun. The southern part of the area served chiefly political uses, the northern trade. Dealers in bread, cheese, garlic, fish, wine, and other foodstuffs, in pots and pitchers, in oils, perfumes, and books, had their several wicker booths closely crowded here, and the noises of hawkers and customers as they bartered and jangled, were like unto the uproar of the pandemonium. In the afternoon trade yielded to lounging, social talk, and philosophic discussion. Nearby were the shops of barbers, perfumers, shoemakers, and other tradesmen, and to them the Athenians resorted in the evening for meeting friends and making new acquaintances. Theseus and the Theseum Another building erected in the lower city in this period deserves consideration. When Simon had conquered Cyrus, he brought home from that island what purported to be the bones of the hero Theseus, after they had rested there four hundred years. In pursuance of a Delphic oracle, he built, east of the marketplace, a shrine to Theseus, in which these relics were deposited. Quote, his tomb is a place of refuge for slaves and for all the poor and oppressed, because Theseus in life was the champion and the avenger of the poor, and always kindly hearkened to their prayers. End quote. 
It was in keeping with the humane spirit of that age described above that the Athenians transformed this mythical hero into a sympathetic protector of the lowly. The same process of thought made him the creator of his country's liberty, the founder of democracy. The Academy Lastly among Simon's works may be mentioned his improvement of the Academy, a precinct of Athena on the banks of the Sisyphus, northwest of Athens. A gymnasium had stood there from the age of the tyrants, but the spot was dry and unsheltered. Simon converted it into a public garden, well watered and shaded with planes, elms, and other trees, under which there were pleasant walks. There the Athenian boy was wont, quote, to run races beneath the sacred olives along with some modest age fellow, crowned with white olives, redolent of yew and careless ease, and of leaf-shedding white poplar, rejoicing in the season of spring, when the plane tree whispers to the elm. Temples and Sculpture While in our study of this age our interest has centered in Athens, we must bear in mind that equal or even greater public improvements were being made throughout Hellas, that thus far Athens received much more from the rest of Hellas than she gave, that she had neither temples nor works of utility that could compare with those of Acragas and Syracuse already mentioned. Agena, too, had a beautiful temple, apparently to a local goddess Aphaea, built about the time of the Battle of Salamis, and a quarter of a century later was finished the great temple to Zeus at Olympia. All these shrines had their decorative sculptures, often symbolical of the recent struggle for freedom. Great gains were made in the representation of the human form. The anatomy of the body was now vastly better known, and the fixedness of attitude and expression yielded to mobility and life. Monotony of posture gave way to variety. Miron. The greatest artistic achievement of the age is to be credited to Miron of Athens, the most famous of athletic sculptors. We know him best from his Discobolus, a bronze statue, several marble copies of which are extant. As a piece of sculpture can represent but a single attitude, it must tell its story by suggestion. This problem Miron was the first to solve. His Discobolus stands, quote, at the top of the swing, end quote, with every muscle at its utmost tension, the body wonderfully contorted, yet pleasing in its naturalness and harmony. We read in the momentary attitude the entire story of the quote-unquote record-breaking throw. A defect to be made good by later artists is the calmness of the face wholly out of keeping with the violent tension of the body. The Charioteer of Delphi With this piece we may contrast another work of the age by an unknown non-Athenian artist the bronze statue of the charioteer of Delphi. Associated with it, originally, were a chariot and four. The quiet dignity of bearing and the intelligent face, full of character and reserved strength, indicate no ordinary jockey, but a man fit to take part in the councils of state. For in this age, even kings did not despise the role of charioteer. It is, undoubtedly, the most excellent bronze Greek statue in existence.
Illustration, Charioteer at Delphi The Spirit of the Age The last two works mentioned represent contrasting aspects of the same great age, tremendous force kept well in hand and austere dignity. These heroic qualities, subordinating prettiness, characterize the Marathonian warriors who dominated the generation. Back of their loud utterance and stiff stride is the stout heart and the high purpose. If a law of development has brought about this harmonious relation of fine arts to human character, that fact can only be taken as evidence of the spontaneous and organic growth of Hellenic civilization. End of chapter 13